chapter 6. If you would open your Bible there with me. As I said last week, John chapter 6 is the second longest chapter in all the Bible, next to Psalm 119. And uh, it's all one concept, and so we're, I'd like to lay the concept out completely from the text, rather than moving back and forth between the book of Isaiah during this time. So after we finish John chapter 6, we'll go back to our every other week rotation of John and Isaiah. But for this morning, we are in John chapter 6, verses 30 through 40. And after you get your Bible there, I'm going to flash a picture on the screen, and your job is to find the toothbrush. But wait just a second before you put it up there. Picture in your mind what a toothbrush looks like, the size of a toothbrush. Are you ready? Because I'm, the, the picture is going to be of someone's bathroom. It's not my bathroom. I don't know whose bathroom it is. It's going to be a picture of a bathroom, and there will be a toothbrush hidden. I'm going to count to five. You need to find the toothbrush. Ready? Set. Go. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Who found it? All right. Show the next picture. Okay. Did you find the little one or the big one? All right, so here's the idea is that even though we might be looking something at something very obvious, we can't see it. Has that ever happened to you? Happens to me all the time. It annoys Amanda like crazy because <laughs> it's sitting right in front of me and I can't see it. Uh, but that happens, doesn't it? Something might be so obvious and sitting right in front of our face and yet I'm blind to it. We're going to read a story here, a second part of a story about a group of people who had Jesus, the Son of God, standing right in front of their face. And you know what happened? They didn't see him. Let's read that. John 6, verses 30 through 40. So they said to him, that is Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. So they said, it starts. Uh, if you just back up one verse, if you weren't here with us last week, you'll, you'll already catch the drift, and you remember this story. Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him and whom he has sent. Now, previous to that, Jesus had just walked on water, and, uh, but this group of people, this massive crowd of thousands of people didn't see that, but they did just see a miraculous event. That is Jesus feeding what it's commonly called the 5,000, but we know that there were closer to 15 to 20,000 people there because 5,000 was the number of men, not total people. So Jesus had just miraculously fed 15 to 20,000 people, and then the disciples leave. They go across the water to a particular town on a boat. Jesus stays, dismisses the crowds. Jesus then, at night, walks on the water, gets in the boat, 
with the disciples, and immediately they're at their location. The people say, where did they all go? They get on boats, they go over to Capernaum, and there is Jesus, and they have met up with him, and they're asking him some particular questions. Jesus said, you need to believe in the one whom God has sent. That's, that's the whole idea. So they said to him, so what sign do you show us? What sign do you do that we might believe you that you are the son of God? Now, I guess the question is, what greater sign could Jesus do in front of these people than to multiply this little itty-bitty tiny, tiny bit of food and feed fifteen to 20,000 people with 12 baskets of food left over. And then they say, well, what sign do you show us? He just showed them a pretty great sign, didn't he? But they're asking for more. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? So there's a problem. The problem is that they have seen him, but they can't see him. It's not going to be the only time that we see this happen. If, when we get there in John 12, I don't know when that will be, but when we get to John 12, verses 37 through 40, listen to what it says. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So the word of the Lord, so the word by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. It seems to be that incorrect assumptions keep us from seeing what's right in front of us. That's the whole idea with that picture of the toothbrush, is that most of you who found the toothbrush probably found the little one. Because we have incorrect assumptions sometimes, or maybe our preconceived ideas keeping us from seeing the obvious. See, you were looking for a small toothbrush. You were not looking for a big toothbrush. And so you found the little one. That may not be the case for all of you, but you get the idea. Our preconceived notions keep us from seeing things. All humanity has an incorrect assumption of God that keeps them from seeing Him. All humanity has an incorrect assumption of God that keeps them from seeing Him. God is not who we think He would be. And so when we're looking for Him, we don't see Him, and He's right in front of our face. Why? Because I have a wrong assumption of who God actually is. So I can't see Him. What causes this? Well, we know the answer to that. Sin causes this incorrect assumption of who God is. So that means that the natural person cannot understand spiritual realities. The natural person cannot understand spiritual realities. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they, the spiritual things, are spiritually discerned. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God and their foolishness. Jimmy talked about that earlier. Romans 1, 18-21 Listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. Okay, so there's the problem. God has shown all creation who he is. But by our unrighteousness, by our sin, we suppress that reality and turn it into something different. For his invisible attributes, namely... 
His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so everyone is without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what that means is that even though they were seeing, they could not see, and even though they were hearing, they could not hear. Is this the state of natural man in his sin? So it's no wonder that this massive group of people Thousands of people can see this great miracle, and yet they still can't see him for who he is. Because in the heart of natural man, he cannot perceive the spiritual things of God. So something needs to change, doesn't it? How do we get moved then from that state of not understanding spiritual things to understanding spiritual things? How do our eyes go from being closed to open? Or how do we go from being blind to being able to see? The Spirit of God is needed to see the things of God. John 3.3, 3, remember when he was talking to Nicodemus? He's already brought this concept up. The Spirit of God is needed to see the things of God. Nicodemus is having a problem with that. He said, how can these things be in John 3.9? In John 3.3, 3, Jesus answers, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in order to see the things of God, you need to be born again to see the things of God, right? We know this concept. It's called regeneration. That's the idea. That's our theological term for it, that we are regenerated. To be generated means to be brought about. To be regenerated means to be brought about again. We need to be reborn. We need to be born again. A physical birth? No, Nicodemus didn't understand. How can I enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? Now, that doesn't make sense, and that's not Jesus' point. But you need to be born a different way. You need to be born of the Spirit of God. And this is spiritual regeneration. It can be defined as a special act of God in which the recipient is passive. You can't regenerate yourself. God alone awakens the person spiritually through the power of his Holy Spirit. I want to read a passage out of the Old Testament. This is Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. This, this is the passage that we're well aware of, but listen to what it says. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes to be careful to be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear just in that passage, that's a promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear how that promise makes the recipient passive? What does that mean? It doesn't say, and so you need to make yourself born again with a new spirit. But what it says is, I will give you a new heart. I'm not giving myself a new heart. I will put a spirit within you. I'm not putting a spirit within me. God is doing that. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'm not doing that. You can't do that. That is a work of God. Regeneration is a work of God that we might be born again and understand spiritual things, but only when the Spirit of God is working in us. I'll read one more here. Titus 3, 4 through 6, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? How did God save us? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured on us richly in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God comes inside of us and makes us new. I'm not telling you anything new. I think everybody in the room knows what I'm talking about. But in order to understand where this is going, we need to be reminded of the fact that regeneration is not something that you can accomplish on your own. You cannot give yourself a new heart. How could you? But that's a work of the Spirit of God in you. Okay, so it says, of these people, looking back at our text, they said, sir, give us this bread always. Now, right there we understand. These people had no idea what he was talking about because they're not understanding the spiritual reality, right? They don't have the Spirit of God working. They don't get it. Oh, give us this bread. Yeah, that's what we want. Remember the woman at the well? Yeah, give me that water. I want that water all the time. These people don't get it. Why? Because the Spirit of God has not yet revealed these things to them. These things don't make sense to them because they're spiritual realities. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, so whoever comes to me shall not hunger and shall never thirst. But I say that you have seen me and you don't believe. Let's continue on. Verse 30, uh, I want to focus in on verses 33 through 35. It says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Okay? Sir, give us this bread always. I want to say this. We touched on this last week, but if we don't get this part of Jesus being the bread of life, we're really not going to get it. And if you still think that it's different then you're not understanding the spiritual reality that's involved here. And I can summarize it this way for us. Is that true belief in Jesus satisfies the soul, not the stomach. True belief in Jesus satisfies the soul, not the stomach. See, they were looking to continually be satisfied with bread and with drink and with whatever Jesus can give them. Is that primarily why Jesus came? To give you food? To give you clothes? To give you a house? To give you a job? To satisfy your comforts in life? Or did he come to satisfy your soul? Seems pretty easy when you contrast it like that, doesn't it? But maybe, just maybe you're looking at Jesus with the wrong perception. Maybe you have the wrong idea of who Jesus is. You think Jesus exists to satisfy your pleasures and to ease your life of all these hard times, when in reality, that is not why Jesus has come. But Jesus came to satisfy your soul and to satisfy the divine wrath of God for your sin. This is why Jesus has come. He says, you have seen me, but... You don't believe. God gave bread to Moses temporarily, which means he gave them life temporarily. Jesus comes as eternal bread to give eternal life. If you eat of Jesus, you will have life forever. How do you eat of Jesus? That's their question. Okay, what do we need to do? Believe in him. Believe in him how? Believe in him for who he really is. We have a problem in 
church culture in thinking that faith in Jesus means believing that he was a true historical figure. Have you come across this, or maybe you would believe that before? You have faith in Jesus. Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus was real. Yeah, oh, yeah. And that's faith. That, that is not faith in Jesus. That is not what that means. That is very far from what it means. Satan believes that because it's a reality. These people believe that Jesus was real. He was right in front of them. That was not what they had to have faith in. They needed to have faith in the fact that this man was the very Son of God. That he was crucified, he died, and that he was raised from the dead and now lives eternally at the right hand of the Father. That's what we have faith in. That Jesus was the Savior of the world and continues to be to this day because he's not dead. He is alive. And so we have faith in a risen Savior. We do not simply have faith that this man existed in history. That's not enough. And maybe, again, that's one of your misconceptions, is that Christianity calls you to believe in a historical figure. Yes, but you need to believe in the identity of that historical figure from the heart. They only saw with their eyes, they only heard with their ears, and they only craved with their stomachs. We are called to much more than that. We are called to see unseen realities. We are called to hear spiritual truths. And we are called to crave God himself. You remember Psalm 42, 1 and 2? It was made kind of iconic in a sense by a particular song. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come to appear before God? The question I have for you in this moment is, do you crave God himself? Does your soul truly and genuinely long for the living God? If it's hard for you to even ask that question to yourself, there's a problem. If you don't get the question, there is a bigger problem. Because this is a spiritual reality. This is a spiritual truth that your soul craves God. Have you come to the point in your life where you crave nothing else but God himself? If you have not, I pray that God would take you to that point. That point hurts. But we need to realize that this life is not all that there is, certainly. Are you at the point in your life to where you're still craving a big retirement fund? Or you're craving uh, the next thing you want to get? What did my heart crave that Christmas morning? Okay, for those of you who know that story. My heart was set on an object. And so therefore my heart was crushed when I didn't get it. Maybe your heart is set on a relationship with a person. Maybe your heart is set on some kind of material financial thing this morning. Maybe your heart is set on something. And when you don't get it, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be crushed. But what if your soul were set on God and you have him? What then can crush your soul? Nothing. Nothing. You have God in all of his fullness if you would believe on the Son completely.
you have everything. You have found the great treasure and nothing else matters. Let's look at the next uh, little bit of the passage here. Verse 37. It says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I knew when we started the study in the Gospel of John that one day we would get to this text. This is a very difficult text. If you're reading it, if you're hearing the basic truth of it, just the English grammar, how it's put together, this is saying some very difficult things to really believe. I want to encourage you this morning to see what the text says, to understand it in context. There are two options in this world, and you must believe one of them. This is one of those questions I'm going to ask you, and you have to, you have to pick one of them, because I'm telling you, there is only two options to the answer to this question. Are you prepared to make a choice? Choice A. There is no choice C. Don't try to come up with it. Choice A. God does not have the power to save all people. Choice B, God does not have the intention to save all people. You must choose. Why? Because not all people are saved. We become comfortable in taking questions like this and saying, that's one of those things that's debatable for me. I'm not, I'm not sure. I haven't. I don't know. You know what? I, I sympathize with that answer, and that's okay. I want to show this text to you this morning, and I'm just, I'm, I'm hoping that it will kind of help, it will help in that answer. Let's see the promises that Jesus is making, and let's see what exactly he's saying about how the Father and Son work together, and about who will be saved. Okay? Here he says, remember the, the last verse, look at verse 36. He says, but I say to you that you have seen me and do not believe. You remember he said that. So now he's qualifying that. He's giving a reason why they don't believe. You have seen me do the miracles. You have seen me do the signs. And yet, you do not believe. Now, he's going to say, now let me help you understand why that is. Verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. There is a very basic truth here that we just need to understand from the way this is written. And I'm just going to reword. I mean, this is exactly what he said, but it needs to be said. All those given by the Father will come to the Son. That's what it says. And there is no other way to understand that in this context. All those given by the Father will come to the Son. Because, after all, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It's the same thing. So laying that kind of as a premise, let's look at John chapter 17. So we're just kind of 
fast-forwarding a little bit, I want you to, I, I actually am going to have this one on the screen because it's an important text. John 17. I know it's little. Some of you may not be able to see it. Open your Bible and look at it with me. Uh, I have it up here for a vis visual representation here in just a moment. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 10. Here's what I want to show you. This is the same John who records this particular conversation. He knows what he wrote. He knows what it means. Look at verse 6. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. What we need to see is that this is a particular group of people. Uh, go to that next slide. Look at just the colors there. The people whom you gave me out of the world will continue to be referenced as they and them. Okay, let's just read it. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given, is, given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am, listen to verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Well, verse 9 is, seems to be very bizarre. Verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, the term for this used in, in your Bible and in mine um, is a particular group of people that you'll find all throughout the Scriptures. And the term used for this particular group of people who are given from the Father to the Son are called the elect. Now, some people choke at that term, but it is a biblical term, okay? It's in the Bible, so don't choke at the words of God, please, or you're going you're gonna to get hurt. So, it's a biblical word, and nothing has been said that's controversial, okay? This is a biblical concept that those who are given by the Father to the Son are the elect of God. Um, the elect are those whom God has given to the Son for salvation, sometimes called the chosen. I just want to read a couple of These are very quick. Just some references. Mark 13, 20. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. All right, Matthew 24, 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and he will gather his elect from the four winds. Why is he only gathering the elect? Because the elect is that group of people who have been given by the Father to the Son for salvation. Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. No charge can be brought against the elect, but charges can be brought against those who are not part of that group. Titus 1.1, Paul, the servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Again, a particular group of people. Now, let me say this. The fact that there is a group of people chosen for salvation called the elect is not debatable. It is biblical. The manner in which God chooses is the debate. That's the debatable part, okay? The manner in which God chooses and elects. That's where the theological debate is, where people tend to stray away from this term. But the fact that this group exists 
is not debatable. It, it's, it's a reality. Have we kind of seen that in the text? It is a group of people that are unlike another group. There are two groups of people, those who are saved and those who are not. Those who are saved have been given by the Father to the Son for salvation. And everyone who is given by the Father to the Son, there's some other promises made in our text. Look at them. All the Father gives me will come to me. There's a promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's another promise. You see it? For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If you were not here for the discussion on how subordination works within the Trinity, um, there is a sermon that you need to go back and listen to. Um, because in no way is Jesus inferior to the Father. In no way he is 100% God, completely equal to the Father, yet he willingly takes on a subordinate role in the economy of the Trinity. If that sounds like foreign language, I want you to go back and find that, uh, find that sermon. So, Jesus is doing the will of his Father, and this is the will of him who sent me, verse 39. This is, God's, this is the Father's will for the Son. Do you think there's a possibility before we read it that it's not going to happen? That if it's the Father, God the Father, God Almighty, says, this is my will for you, Son of God. Is there a possibility that this is not going to happen? I hope your answer is no, because if your answer is yes, it might not happen, then you have a very low view of God. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What are we saying? Jesus is making a promise that if you have faith, believing in him as the Son of God, there is 0% chance that you will not be raised to eternal life. But if you look on the Son and believe, you will be raised to eternal life. Jesus will raise you to life. So again, the problem is, not all people are saved. We have to agree with that. So the question is, either God does not have the power to save all people, or he does not intend to save all people. just want you to consider that question. I'm not going to give you an answer. I want you to consider that question this morning. Okay, so we've seen that. Two things I want to point out from this. Number one, the act of justification cannot be undone. What is justification? Justification is that time when you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah, that you, as the Scripture says, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you confessed Him as Lord, and this has genuinely taken place. Now, who knows whether or not that has genuinely taken place? Uh, that's not a determination that I can call. But when this has genuinely taken place, it cannot be undone. We see the text here. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. If you look on the Son believing, eternal life is yours. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that 
He may be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The portion of the text that I want to look at is where it says, those whom he justified, he glorified. There are zero who were justified and then not glorified. All who are justified are glorified. All of them. And how do we become justified in God's sight? By believing on the Son. And once you are justified, you will be glorified. Of course, the question there is, then what are those people who say, I believe and now I don't believe. I was a Christian and now I'm not a Christian. Um, The answer to that is what we commonly find in Scripture, commonly, is that there are people who say they believe but do not actually believe. You can even fool yourself that you believe, but if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that faith will remain. Because if you look on Jesus Christ believing, well, we're going we're gonna to get to that in this next point. And that next point is that the work of regeneration cannot be reversed. Once the new birth has occurred, it can't be taken back. He's not going to unregenerate you. You become regenerate. I've been born of the Spirit of God. And he's like, ah, I don't like where your life is headed. I'm going to take that back. I'm going to take back all the life that I gave you by my Spirit. All that spiritual knowledge and understanding, the gifting of the Spirit of God, conviction, I'm taking it all back. I want it all back. If God has justified us in His sight by faith in Christ, then all of our sins, past, present, future, have been forgiven. Therefore, there is nothing you can do that the wrath of God would be poured on you in such a way that He would remove salvation from you. For it's His promise that everyone who looks on the Son believing will be raised to eternal life. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. So he's sure of this. We need to be sure of this too. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I say this for our understanding of the scriptures and how these doctrines relate to one another, but this also. Maybe you are at a point in your life to where you possibly think that your life has gone in such a way that God is no longer pleased with you. You've made too many bad decisions for God to continue to allow you to have eternal life. And could be possibly that you question whether you ever believed in the first place. So here's a couple things on that. That's a, that's a common, that's a very common, let me first of all say that, that is common. It's very common. If you have genuine faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you have confessed your sins before Him and you have believed on Him as the Lord and Savior of your life, that is the essence of salvation. Okay? It does not say, then go and prove your salvation by never sinning again, but we are urged to not sin. Correct? We are urged to not sin, but yet if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Isn't that what it says in 1 John? I'm writing these things to you, little children, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, it's okay. We have an advocate with the Father. Therefore, confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Isn't that what it says? Okay, so what I want to urge you with today then is this. I'm going to read a text before I say it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Seeing Jesus Christ is far more memorable than anything you've ever seen that you have said, whoa, I can't unsee that. Whatever I just saw is burned into my mind. I cannot unsee what I just saw. Much more clear is the glory of God that shines on your heart in the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot unsee it. Once you have seen it, you can't unsee it. It is burned in there forever. 1 John 5, 18 through 20. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Everyone who has been born of God, regenerated, does not keep on sinning, but you are protected. Could it be that God would choose to protect some and not you? I don't think so. It's not true. But we, we, we tend to believe that, don't we? The evil one does not touch him. For we know we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come to give us understanding that we may know him who is true. He is the true God and eternal life. Okay, so here's the text I want to get to. I'm leaving you with this this morning. One larger text for those who are believers and one text for those of you in this room who are teetering or know for sure that you are not a believer. Number one, for those of you who are believers in the room and you know that you are, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, listen to what it says. His divine power has granted to us, believers, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is regeneration language. You hear it? Verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. We can stop right there and say, I am failing at making every effort to supplement my faith with these things. Isn't that true? Or if you say, no, I, I think I am. You're making every effort, every effort of yours goes in to supplementing your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Every effort. We have work to do. For if these qualities of yours and are increasing, they keep you from being, listen to the words, ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. Could it be that you are one of those this morning who has become nearsighted in your faith? 
that you in this moment are ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election because if you pursue spiritual things and you're able to, that's a good confirmation that the Spirit of God is at work in your life because the natural man, the sinful man, cannot pursue those things. Ineffective and unfruitful, is that you? That is to say, I've seen Jesus and I've believed, but I'm kind of closing my eyes right now to who he is and the fact that he's standing there right in front of me. Second passage is just one verse. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. There is nothing more important in this life than your personal spiritual maturity. Are you making every effort to make sure that you are healthy and mature? Or are other things taking priority? Are you making every effort to grow in your faith? and love, and knowledge? Or are you making every effort to make sure that this week isn't as crazy as last week was? Or are you making every effort to make sure that that thing works? Are you making every effort to keep your job? Are you making every effort to get money? Are you making every effort to do whatever it is? Where are your efforts going? Are they going into your own personal spiritual maturity? Does this question even bother you? If not, that takes us to the next question. If the question doesn't bother you, then you need to examine yourself. You need to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. And one of those things that is a check mark or a drop on one side is that if spiritual things never convict your heart, are you gripped by the Word of God? We read a lot of texts this morning did any of it speak to you? Did any of it grip you? Did any of it satisfy you? Did any of it give you relief and joy and encouragement in your heart, knowing that me, even me, broken, pathetic sinner, has been given the greatest treasure in Jesus Christ, and I find all my satisfaction in Him? Is there any of that happening in you? Do you desire it? The call of the gospel is this. Believe on him whom God has sent, that he is the son of God, that he was crucified and died and was raised three days later, that on him all the sins of the world were laid and he bore the wrath of God reserved for our sins. And if you simply believe on him, you will have eternal life. But belief does not come empty-handed. Belief comes along with repentance of sin. Have you ever had a time where you confess to God that you are a sinner, broken, and you said, I have complete faith on Jesus Christ that all the punishment that would have been mine has now been laid on him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our call Open your eyes to the faith that you had. 
Don't see a Jesus Christ who can satisfy your stomach. See a Jesus Christ who can satisfy your soul.